<clears throat> as chapter 20 begins, we find that Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now we want to, it's a curious phrase, we want to look at that thoroughly this morning, this restraint of Satan or Satan bound. And there are three things we want to bring up about the restraint of Satan. One is the timing of this restraint. When does this happen? When does this occur? When does this take place? Is that future? Is it now? We want to talk about the timing of this restraint. Second, we want to see the nature of this restraint. In what way is he bound? How is he bound? The nature of this restraint is the second thing we want to see today. And then finally, we want to see, thirdly, the duration of this restraint. How, how long does this last? Uh, how long is he restrained? So let's begin with the first of these three things, and let's study the timing of this first event, the restraining of Satan. When does it take place? When is Satan restrained? Look with me at verse 1 that we just read a moment ago. Look at it again in your copy of God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Excuse me. <coughs> and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. When does this thousand-year period happen? this period that says Satan is bound, when does uh, the millennium, as it's often referred to, 1,000 years, when does the millennium occur? There are at least three different views on the timing of the 1,000 years that we read about in verse 2. And I want to present those to you just briefly today. This is, uh, boy, we're just skimming the surface of this. Uh, this can easily become a rabbit hole. It has become a rabbit hole for many. It's not intended to become a rabbit hole. Uh, so I'm just going to skim the surface of what these three views are when this takes place. Again, you might differ with my view. That's uh, understandable. Most people do. <laughs> uh, perhaps not. We'll see how it goes. The first view of when this thousand years takes place is called premillennialism. Uh, premillennialism. This is the view that my mother taught me as my junior high group leader when I was growing up. This is the view that my father preached from his pulpit uh, as I was growing up. This is the view that I was taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is the view held widely by, I would say, most Christians in the United States of America. This is a view, premillennialism, that I used to hold. This view believes that Jesus Christ will return for his church before the thousand years. Hence the pre in premillennialism. Some who hold this view believe that there will be a seven-year period called the tribulation before the thousand years. There are some who do not believe that. Premillennialists generally, though, hold that the thousand years 
will be an actual and literal thousand-year period of time during which Jesus Christ will reign with his saints on the earth. Uh, this thousand years will be a golden age of peace lasting until a final rebellion and judgment day. Premillennialism is what this is called. Many of you hold that view. There's a second view that maybe a smaller number of you hold in this group uh, called postmillennialism. Again, note the prefix. Postmillennialists believe that Jesus Christ will return after or post the thousand years. Uh, some in this second group believe that the thousand years are literal and actual, 1,000 years. Others believe that the thousand years is simply a very long period of time. This view is summed up like this. Uh, this view says that before Christ comes again, the entire world will be one for Christ. Sin and conflict will gradually be defeated, and righteousness and peace will increasingly reign throughout the world. This present time will end in a golden age of success in missions and the transformation of society. So post-millennialism post believes the thousand years will be a golden age and then Christ will return. There's a third view, and this is the one that I hold, hold and have been uh, attempting to teach throughout our study of the book of Revelation called amillennialism, sometimes called non-millennialism. This view holds that the thousand years is not an actual literal period of time. Like the rest of the numbers in the book of Revelation, uh, this view holds that 1,000 is also a symbolic number referring to a very long period of time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, this entire gospel age. So to put it in plain English, the, millennial, the, the millennium is now, began at the first coming of Christ and will continue till his second coming. Now, some of you, I can see your jaws are dropped and you are in quite a bit of shock because you've never heard this idea before. But I want to assure you that this is not anything that I made up uh, in my basement after using spray paint. Um, <laughs> For an extended period of time, this view has been around a long time, as have these other views. Uh, Dr. Joel Beakey uh, asserts that this is the view, this view of the end times is what is held by most Reformed Christians. So if you grew up in a Presbyterian church or you grew up in a Reformed Baptist church, you probably grew up hearing this and this is no shock to you at all. This third view is called amillennialism, sometimes non-millennialism, sometimes inaugurated millennialism. Uh, now, why do I bother to explain this or go through this? It's because I believe that this third view 
is what's taught in the verses before us today. This amillennialism or non-millennialism is the one our passage supports. Uh, and I believe that our passage supports this view for three reasons. The first reason that I want to point out to you about this timing issue is the word then. At the very beginning of verse 1, you see in your Bible the word then. Uh, two weeks ago, we studied what comes before this. The return of Jesus Christ in chapter 19, who comes in great power and great glory and destroys his enemies with the breath of his mouth and imprisons the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. And then we come to chapter 20, which begins, Then I saw an angel. And we see the word then. And we might think that John means next I saw. After this I saw. The next thing I saw. We think that it implies a sequence of events. This is what came next in a chronological order. We see the word then and think that uh, it must indicate the events of chapter 20 take place after the events of chapter 19. And, and if you view it this way, it's quite easily to reach the conclusion that premillennialists do, that the thousand years takes place after Christ returns in chapter 19. Well, the trouble is with the word then. Sometimes it can be translated then, but typically it's simply translated and what comes in chapter 20 doesn't necessarily follow chapter 19. It's just the next, next vision John had, though it might not come in succession. In other words, the events of chapter 20 don't necessarily follow on the heels of what takes place in chapter 19. We see something just like this between chapter 11 and 12. Back in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, we saw Christ come in judgment, just like we see here in chapter 19. It says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth, obviously, a reference to the day of the Lord, Christ's return, uh, judgment. Well, what comes next in the next chapter? Well, chapter 12 starts like this. And, same word, then uh, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars said this represented uh, true Israel. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. She's giving birth to the Messiah. Uh, this is obviously not following the, the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, chapter 12 certainly doesn't follow chapter 11 where Christ comes in judgment. And, and we see the same thing between chapter 19 and 20. At chapter 19, we reach the end of one of these cycles 
Uh, it ends with the return of Jesus Christ coming in power and glory, and his enemies are defeated and, and essentially annihilated, and the beast and the false prophet are taken care of and, and disposed of in the lake of fire. And then John starts over. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, but it's not as though the thousand years follows the return of Christ. Uh, so the word then is, is crucial uh, that we understand. It, it can even mean even, but here it probably should be better translated than, uh, excuse me, and, so it doesn't give the impression that this follows this. Well, we're just getting started. I want you to see next uh, another reason why chapter 20 supports an amillennial view. And that's the enemies uh, that are mentioned in chapter 19. The enemies, what about them? What's so important about Christ's enemies in chapter 19? The answer is that they're all destroyed in chapter 19. Uh, two weeks ago, we studied these events and saw Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, return in glory, as I've already mentioned. Uh, again, defeating the beast and the false prophet, he annihilates his enemies at the end of the age, at the conclusion of, of, a world, of world history. And, and this is not just a local event. This is a worldwide event where Satan and the beast and the false prophet deceive the nations of the world, convincing them uh, one last time to rise up against the church in, a, in one final last-ditch attempt to destroy it. And those who worshipped the beast and those who'd received his mark, in other words, all those who've never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, all those rise up and, and participate and join in this last-ditch effort to destroy the church. This is when Christ returns and raptures his church and destroys his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Glance up to verse 17 uh, in chapter 19. Look in your in your copy of God's word at what it says. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men both free and slave, both small and great. Jump down to verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped its image, these too were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain. By the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Rather grotesque, I admit, but what it reveals is that there are no more enemies of Christ. They have been 
dealt with finally and fully. They have been destroyed. But, but then notice chapter 20. The very next verse, yes, I've read it already. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Wait, what? Might not deceive the nations any longer? Where did they come from? They were all wiped out in the previous chapter. And, and then down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their, their number is like the sand of the sea. There they are again in their... their they're a vast multitude. But I thought these were all wiped out. The rest were slain by the sword of his mouth. And then verse 9 of chapter 20, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, these enemies, these nations, and surrounded the camp of the saints. Wait a minute, where did they come from? The believers were taken to glory, raptured to be with Christ right before he came in chapter 19. What are they doing here? What is this talking about? Believers are raptured at the return of Christ, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and the nations are judged at the return of Christ, destroyed by the breath of his mouth. All of that takes place in chapter 19. The events of chapter 20 can't possibly follow the events of 19. Chapter 20 must be describing the same period of time. The time between Christ's first and second coming, the entire gospel age, it's another retelling of the end. Another cycle or another loop, another description of the gospel age like others we've looked at before. The, the mention of, of the enemies and believers in both places supports this, the a millennial view. So, then doesn't necessarily mean then there's enemies in both places. They can't be wiped out and then pop back up again. And then there's one more thing, and that's, excuse me, that's the final battle that we see. It's described here, well, it's described in both chapters. The first reference to this final battle, the battle where the nations of the world are deceived into rising up against the church. It, this happens back in chapter 11. It says, when they have finished their testimony, that's the two witnesses, by the way, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And then from chapter 11 on, the final battle, I'm talking about the 
final battle at the end of history when Christ returns and, and conquers his enemies. It's called the battle. The battle, as in there's only one. Uh, we see this in the sixth bowl judgment. If you want to flip back to chapter 16 with me, it's two pages away for Pete's sakes. And we see it described there. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. That's the day of the Lord, the last day. Verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is, in Hebrew was called Armageddon. But note verse 14. It says in the middle of verse, uh, the verse, to assemble them for battle. Really, the Greek text says to assemble them for the battle. It's not just any battle. It's a specific battle. It's the one he talked about in chapter 11. Uh, the battle first mentioned there. This is the final battle that takes place on the final day. The great day of God the Almighty. And then as we go back uh, towards our passage, you see the same battle in, in chapter 19. I've already described it, but look at uh, what it says in chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They're waging war against Christ and his church. But again, it says make war. It says make the Greek text says, make the war, or wage the battle. Again, this is referring to that final battle that John's already brought up twice. And then in chapter 20, verse uh, 7, uh, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and they will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Again, it's for the battle. There's one final battle. Not uh, two battles separated by a thousand years. It's, it's the battle. So we see chapter 20. It's another retelling. It's another round of, of John describing the gospel age. The thousand years doesn't come after or before Christ's return. Uh, it, it's this age. It, it does happen before Christ returns. It's now, the, the millennium, the thousand years, it's already been inaugurated by Christ after his first coming. And there is one battle at the end that the nations are assembled for. I believe this all supports what I called amillennialism, 
or non-millennialism or inaugurated millennialism. We are living in the thousand years. It's a symbolic number, refers to a very long period of time, as obviously it has already well exceeded a thousand years. This is the timing of the millennium. This is when Satan is restrained. He's restrained now. That brings us to a second thing. That brings us to the nature of his restraint. And so I hear and see the thought bubbles above your head, and boy, they're loud. Pastor Rob, if you're telling me, looking at all the evil in the world, if you are saying that Satan is restrained now, you have been in the basement with the spray paint too long. How could anybody think that? That is, pardon me for saying it, Pastor Rob, foolish. For you to say such an outrageous thing that Satan could be bound. It's a great thought. It's a very good question you've brought up. When we look out at the world and see widespread evil, how can we even remotely say that Satan has been bound. Well, I believe he has indeed been bound or restrained, and I believe, I believe this for three reasons. Uh, first, one reason I believe that Satan is bound or restrained is because of the language in the book of Job. Uh, going back to the early chapters of Job, uh, we see that in some ways, Satan has always been bound. I do mean always. I'm going to flip there and read uh, a couple verses from Job chapter 1. And you're familiar with this account. You've heard it before. But listen to what it says. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, this is our adversary, our enemy, the devil we're talking about. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And so here we hear about the protection of, of God's servant. And this is not just true of Job. This is true of every God-fearing man, every righteous person. A hedge around them. Satan continues, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him 
do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and we read following that Satan is allowed to take Job's property, and Job's children are killed in, in a, a tornado, it sounds like, a, a whirlwind. Job asks for permission to take his property and children, and so God grants permission. But this cannot happen unless God gives his permission. There's some way Satan has always been bound. Chapter 2, uh, we see the very same thing, and Satan comes again, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his home, excuse me, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. John Piper has written a wonderful uh, chapter in his book called The Hidden Smile of God, where he deals with these texts. Satan can do nothing without the express permission of God. There, in, in, in some way, Satan has always been bound. Back to the book of Job, for example. The, probably the first book written of the entire Old Testament. Well, we hear this similar language come from the mouth of Jesus toward Peter, and you'll recognize this in Luke 22. Uh, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, just like Job 1 and 2, Satan comes and demands to sift Peter, to tempt Peter. And he's obviously given that permission, for Peter is tempted sorely and fails miserably. So when you hear me say that Satan is bound and find that hard to believe because of the evil you see around you, remember that God's word tells us that in some way Satan has always been bound. He is not a sovereign being. He is not free to do as he pleases. He's a created being created by Jesus Christ according to Colossians 1. He's restrained and must have God's permission to tempt and afflict God's people, even you. As Martin Luther, the, the reformer, used to say, there is a devil, but it is God's devil. Meaning that God, uh, Satan, is completely under God's authority, cannot do as he pleases, but must conform his plans to only that which God allows. I want to press this because I don't remember hearing this while I was growing up. I came away with the idea that God and Satan were, were kind of equal forces. And I was given the impression that Satan was roaming about free to do as he pleased. 
And he is roaming about, 1 Peter 5, 7, the devil roves around like a roaring lion, or 1 Peter 5, 8, excuse me. I, I got the impression that it was only through prayer and, and enough prayer, constant prayer, even worried prayer, that uh, Satan could be restrained and that God's plan and purpose could prevail. That's entirely wrong. And I wonder if maybe you came away with that idea growing up in church too. That you had the idea that Satan's kind of just as powerful as God. And, and, you know, the old, depending on how hard you pray, you know, we kind of give God the edge. Such thinking is absurd. Because Job tells us in Job 42.2, oh, underline it and circle it. Use a highlighter. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isn't that a great word? Thwarted. Gets your whole mouth participating in the verse there. <laughs> I, I believe Satan is bound in this age because he's always been bound. He's always been under restraint. But it's not just the language of Job that teaches this. It's also the language of the New Testament. It's entirely consistent with what we've read in the book of Job. Uh, uh, verses 2 and 3 of Revelation are consistent with what the New Testament says. Again, Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. Consider the word bound there in verse 2 in that final phrase and, and bound him for a thousand years. Jesus using the very same Term says this in our scripture reading that we read just a few moments ago. Uh, the, the Pharisees are accusing him of casting out Satan by Satan's power. And Jesus said, That's, that just doesn't make sense. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is describing uh, to the Pharisees that he casts out demons by the power of God and that Satan, the strong man referred to here, has been bound or restrained in order for him and his disciples to do what they've been doing and that is casting out evil spirits. The same word that we see in Revelation 20. Verse 2 is what Jesus uses here in Matthew 12, 29. This is how his disciples were able to cast out demons. It's not saying that Satan has no power at all. 
It's that his power has been drawn in and curtailed and restrained and confined by God. And so if you read Revelation 20 and verse 2 and say, I just can't believe looking out here that Satan has been bound, that you find that difficult, consider that Jesus said the same thing. Listen to a man named William Hendrickson explain it. We repeat, the devil is not bound in every sense. His influence is not completely destroyed, and to that we would look around and, and readily agree, no, of course not. On the contrary, within the sphere in which Satan is permitted to exert his influence for evil, he rages most furiously. A dog securely bound with a long and heavy chain can do great damage within the circle of his imprisonment. Outside that circle, however, the animal can do no damage and can hurt no one. So also, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, teaches us that Satan's power is curbed and his influence curtailed with respect to one definite sphere of activity. Oh, Colossians drives this home to us. Colossians chapter 2 uh, drives this home to us as well. Uh, the Word of God says in, in that great chapter, uh, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Disarmed means quite literally to strip off clothing. Just a second ago I took off my jacket and I could have used this term with that although I didn't actually strip it off. In a figurative sense, it describes stripping an enemy of his weapons. It describes stripping away authority and power. And listen to what this verse is saying. Satan was thoroughly and decisively defeated at the cross and stripped of his power. That would have been a good place for an amen. Hebrews 2.14 also drives it home uh, where the writer says this, since therefore the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, friend, Christ has curtailed by his death and resurrection, uh, he has curtailed what Satan can do. And the language of the New Testament firmly uh, supports and states this. He is bound and restrained. 
The third reason I believe he's bound and restrained, not only the language of Job, not only the language of the New Testament, but also the international church. Consider the missionaries that we support at New Covenant Bible Church. We support ministries in Guatemala, Dubai, India, even Montenegro at times. And we do that and can do that because Satan has been bound and restrained. The international church exists because he has been pulled in and held back. Uh, take a look at verse 3 again. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Satan's power over the nations is not what it was during the Old Testament. Aside from a few notable conversions, and I'm thinking of Ruth, for example, Rahab the prostitute, and a few others, the kingdom of God was essentially confined to one particular location and one particular people group, and that's the nation of Israel. And so, before his death and resurrection, Jesus sent out his disciples, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, uh, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what does he say after his death and resurrection? Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Before this, the Gentile nations as a whole were gen generally excluded. But now Jesus tells his men explicitly to make disciples of the nations. And so the Apostle Paul states in Acts chapter 7, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is also a fulfillment of what God the Father promised the Son in Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So as we sit here this morning, an international church exists because Satan has been bound and restrained by God. He is no longer allowed to deceive the nations as he once was. This is why I believe he's restrained in this era, the era of the gospel. And, and even though there is still evil in the world, and yes, even though Satan possesses power, he has been bound, pulled in, held back, prevented from doing what he wants to do. Uh, consider the language of Job in this. Consider the language of the New Testament. Consider the international church as proof that Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations. This is the nature of his restraint that verse 2 and 3 describe to us. One more thing I want to point out about the restraint of Satan in our verses today, and that's the, the duration. Uh, I, I know you know it's a thousand years, 
but let me point that out. Uh, we see this in verse 3 again at the very end. After that, he must be released for a little while. He is bound and restrained until the thousand years end, until the gospel age is over, until the end of this age. And at that time, he will be released once more to deceive the nations, this time deceiving them into rising up against Christ and his church, this time deceiving the nations to wage the final battle against Christ, convincing them that they can be victorious. This corresponds with what we've already seen in, in chapter 16, where the nations, uh, where uh, Satan and, and the beast and the false prophet deceive the nations. We see it in chapter 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. We see it again in verse 7 of this chapter, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. This is the duration of his restraint. He will be released at the end of the age to rise up against the church, one final effort to destroy Christ's church, at which point Christ Jesus will come and take us to glory. So, what are these thousand years that our passage talks about, what some call the millennium? How do we understand the thousand years well, there, there's several events. We've, we've only looked at one, and that's how Satan is restrained. Uh, uh, that that uh, we've seen the timing of this. When the thousand year comes, it, it's now. It happens before Jesus Christ descends in power and glory. We've seen the nature of this restraint. How is he held back? He's curtailed. He's pulled in. He's kept on a leash, as it were. And the duration will be the gospel age. This entire, quote, thousand year period of time. Friend, how should we put this into practice? What should we do? And I think, first and foremost, you must understand that your situation today, uh, whatever Satan would have done to you, he was prevented from doing to you by the mighty and sovereign hand of God. And that what God has allowed to occur in your life, painful and horrible as some of those events have been, God has allowed it to accomplish His best for you, even though you have no glimpse of how that could possibly be. How could God bring glory and good out of this? I don't know. But he's God, and he can do all things, and he can turn the sin of other people into your good and to his glory. Second. Since Satan is bound and not able to deceive the nations, what great motive to share the gospel 
with those around us. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed. The nations are here in America. They have come here. And you don't have very far to go, but next door, where the couple is uh, uh, from some Mideastern country, uh, raising chickens in their backyard, not speaking English. Or the couple this side of us that I believe is from Guatemala. Uh, the world is all around you. The nations surround us. And Satan is restrained from deceiving the nations in this era. And so by all means, we should go and share the good news about Jesus Christ and His payment for sin on the cross. So this begins the thousand years, the restraint of Satan. Let me close us in prayer. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Press the truth into our hearts, Christ Jesus, Cause your word to bear fruit and increase. Uh, cause it to multiply in us and outside of us as we share it with others. Savior, we ask in your name. Amen.